All right, we're in Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8, and our verses today is 26 and 27. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Let's start reading, though, with verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we're saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now that was our lesson last week. Now the next two verses is our lesson for today. Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank thee for this portion of thy word and how gracious thou hast been to give us time to study this book of Romans. We've been expecting thy coming at any time, and the longer the delay is, the more we'll learn about thy word. And this eighth chapter, Romans, is so precious, all the way from the beginning to the end. We ask you to teach us, beginning with thy speaker, so much needed to be taught. And all of our hearts need to be taught more about our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for redemption in him and ask that each soul here this day will learn. Learn about themselves. Learn about Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Yeah, this eighth chapter of Romans is something else. I see now, no matter what message anybody preaches, they could always say, turn to Romans eight such and such because it just covers everything today we're talking about real prayer it says likewise the spirit also helpeth our infirmities for we know not what we should pray for as we ought that's one of the big infirmities we just don't even know what to pray for the bible is written and preserved for god's people it's not that others cannot read it and enjoy it because God saw fit to make it very obtainable. Yet when it comes to verses like we have before us, only the blood-bought household of God can derive any meaning from it. 
God's people make up the church, and the church being a stranger on earth and her happiness consisting in communion with her glorious Lord, she groans on account of his absence and earnestly desires his holy and blessed presence. In the meantime, while we're on earth, he promises to his people great consolation to compensate for his absence. Let's look at one of those promises. Turn to John 14, 1. John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. Now that's good. That's a great promise. But you see, stay right there. He also tells you the way. That's in verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. You see, the world systems that teach comparative religion, they've got millions and millions of people in India bowing down and making their chants. And one of the things that the American boys are seeing in Saudi Arabia are the Arabs gathering at their mosque or in their, wherever they gather, and there are hundreds and thousands of them kneeling down and chanting and praying to Allah and to God Almighty. And then there's Africa filled with folks that just worship the sun and animals. And there's those in India, I mean in China and Japan, millions upon millions and millions of people worshiping nothing. Their greatest sincerity, nothing. They quit breathing, they all go to hell. There's only one way to the Father. One way to heaven. It's the most dogmatic statement in the Bible. I am the way. No other way. You say, well, those folks, you know, they're really sincere. They're better people by character. Yes, all that's true. There's no way to heaven, no way to Christ, to, to the Father, but by Christ. Saddam himself kept saying, the mighty God. He's going to deliver us. And he talks about Satan being with Bush and all of that type. He knows the words. Has no hope. Because he hates the Jews and he hates even the name of Christ. Well, these two verses we read, I mean in chapter 14, there's mansions, great promise. Christ tells you how to get there through him. That should be enough to bring a child of God through troubles and afflictions. But he adds a positive, living consolation 
that he would give them. And then look, stay in John 14, but look at 16 and 18. John 14, 16 through 18. This is a living consolation, a helpmeet. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Now this is deep theology. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he walked with them, the Spirit was with them. When he left, the comforter he's talking about, then, they, then the comforter shall be in them. As the Lord Jesus Christ walked with people, the comforter was not in them. It was with them. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one God, three persons. Now, without such support, they'd be overwhelmed by the weight of their afflictions and overcome by their manifold temptations. Paul had already said that the Spirit of God dwells in believers. That's verse 9 of Romans 8. Be able to flash back now to Romans 8. Verse 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. So he's telling you that it dwells in believers. And that it bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's verses 16 and 17. There's a work the Spirit does. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if God, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Sounds great, don't it? Sounds like heaven on earth. Being a child of God must be the most delightful thing on earth. Well, it is for your eternal benefit, but not for the delight of your flesh. I tell you, the flesh don't like it. Something comes up by way of trial in verse 17 and 18. If so be, last part of 17, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. It says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And when he says that, he says, you shouldn't even compare it. It's not worthy to be compared. The glory that God has promised to people compared with the minor sufferings that you're going to take on this earth. You take, you take it kind of... Uh, it's not so much physical suffering as it is mental. Because the world, loved ones, friends, big people, little people, don't like you depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ or even trusting in his promises because that's not their cup of tea. Not at all. <clears throat> it's for your eternal good but not for the delight of the flesh. And then something comes up by way of trial and that was your sufferings and all of our training and education, hopes and ambitions is not to suffer but to live a life free from suffering. That's why you get a good education. You may have to work, 
but work so that your family can live in luxury and ease. Now, that's the whole world system. All the systems in the world are geared for that, whether it's politics, education, religion, or whatever, to work for your good and your ease. You see, that's the world system. We've already explained why God's people suffer in this world, because the world hates Christ. You say, well, where do you get that from? Turn to John 15, 18. I'm not the one saying it. It's the Lord said that. John 15, 18. Here's where he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Just a simple, straight statement. No reasons even given. And the other reason is that God's people love and live by his word, and this brings on the hatred of the world. Not just Christ himself, but his word the world hates. And that's John 17, 14. Next page over. John 17, 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Simple, but very truthful. And you know, I, I've never really realized this. Reading the Bible and having it and you know, teaching Bible class. and the, But these things are beginning to dawn in upon me now as we, as we get older and we, 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 we observing people, we observing family members, we observing friends, people that get the tapes, people that come to church. We're observing. They don't care anything about God's Word. Strange, isn't it? The only thing precious that anybody can contain. Physically speaking, God's Word is the most precious possession you have. Not your computer, not your copy machine, not your automobile, not your home. God's Word. You have all those other things. Have them in abundance. You quit breathing and you go to hell if you don't know the way, if you don't know Christ. But now in our verse, back to Romans 8. In our verse, Paul mentions infirmities, which isn't suffering, but rather the cause of our suffering. Believers have two burdens. One is sin and the other is suffering. Under both of these, they are supported. As to sin, Jesus has charged himself with it. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Turn to 1 Peter 2.24. That's where that comes in. 1 Peter 2.24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we're healed. Now, that, that and several other scriptures you must understand the nature of our Lord's suffering. Where it says here, who his own self bear our sins in his own body. None of our sins ever touched him. Our sins never touched the Lord Jesus Christ. He assumed our sins. 
And so his body was punished for our sins. You understand? He never, like that song we sang when Brother Hale says a sinner hung. Well, he hung there as the worst sinner in creation. But still, the word sinner, if you look it up in a dictionary, would describe that person being one who commits sin. Well, our Lord Jesus Christ never committed sin. In fact, he never even said anything bad. Look up above in verse 22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And the thing that our God hates the most is sin, and he suffered the punishment due our sin. There was no reason why our sin should ever touch him. The fact that he said, I will suffer in their place. That's called imputation. The same with the righteousness that he earned by keeping the law perfectly and then suffering as a substitute. That righteousness doesn't touch you and me. We don't walk in God's righteousness. It'd be great if we could, but we don't. That righteousness remains in Christ. It's imputed. You know how weak and sinful and vile you are. Try, try to vow to do something like, oh, I'm going to quit drinking coffee. Come on, can't do it. No. I'm not going to eat this. Now, after a while, you break through. It's just simple things like that you can't even control in life, much less sin, see. Okay, so we're saved by... His righteousness being imputed to us. So in God's eyes, this is a, a fact to him. He looks at us in Christ and says, this person is perfect. And we're the most imperfect person to our wives, to our friends, to our children, whatever. Very imperfect. But you see, it doesn't make any difference how you appear in anybody else's eyes but God. And if you're in Christ, you're perfect. Isn't that wonderful? Strange gospel, isn't it? You don't hear too much of that. And as to sufferings, they are helped by the Holy Spirit, but only in part, by impar imparting strength to bear them. For all Christians must bear their cross when they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Always bear in mind, in the kingdom of God, Every tear shall be wiped from their eyes and they shall be forever delivered from all suffering. That's throughout eternity. Compare your 60, 70, 80 years with eternity. That's not worthy to be compared either because you can't even begin to compute it. You can't compute light years. And light years are nothing to the Lord totally nothing, eats them up like nothing, traveling from heaven to earth. Very, very mind-boggling. Well, what kind of infirmities do the children of God have? Well, just for beginners, they all have a bad heart. Turn to Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9. Think you're in great health? I'm going to show you the worst part. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You say, well, whose heart's he talking about? Well, he sure isn't talking about Jeremiah's. 
He isn't talking about King Ahab or anybody like that. He's talking about the natural, normal human heart, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Well, who knows about it? Only the Lord does. The next verse says, I search the heart, I the Lord. All right, that's a statement of fact. So that is the first thing of infirmity. Now, they have something else that's the matter with the normal human being. They got a bad mouth. Turn to Matthew 15, 18. Matthew 15, 18. And it always seems as if the heart is bad, the mouth is going to be bad too. And we're going to show you why. And Matthew 15, 18 reads like this, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies, and these are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. See, the controversy there is with the Pharisees. They say, oh, you don't wash your hands before you eat, so it's a sin. Lord said, oh, no, that's, that don't bother you to eat with your hands dirty. It's what comes out of the mouth and it because it proceeds from the heart. <sighs> so people enter into their Christian profession needing the services of the great physician. Heart problems and mouth problems. Well, let's look at that great physician. It's Mark 2.17. Matthew Mark 2.17. And when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what happens to the bad heart? Does God fix it up? Most religious people think so, but that's not what happens. The heart or nature of man is so corrupted since the fall of Adam that in order to save a person, God has to give them a new heart. Ezekiel 36.26 Ezekiel 36.26 A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. You see, that's the new nature. Now take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. He's implying that the natural heart is stony, just like that. It's not soft and pliable. The spirit mentioned there is God's Holy Spirit that indwells believers and I want to show you how that takes place in Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 1.13. In whom, let's read 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance 
until the redemption of the purchased possession, that's your body he's talking about, under the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit indwelling you now, you just have an earnest, just an earnest, just enough to know that you're saved. Waiting till you get your new body. Then you'll really know. And you begin to live. It should be enough to hold you, but that's not all. In our verse today, we learn of the Spirit being our source of prayer. Back to Romans 8. Romans 8. Those pages are getting so worn here in my Bible. Romans 8.26 But before we enter into that, this other infirmity of a bad mouth must be looked into. We found the bad heart stayed, but a new one was given. Now, with the mouth being the spokesperson for the heart, we find a lifelong battle ahead for it sings the praises of God and at the same time, not at the same time, but it, it will also belch forth the poison of the old man. Every child of God does like Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, 5. Well, let's see what every child of God says there in Isaiah 6, 5. Then said I, woe is me. This is from one of God's prophets. For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what salvation does for a person. And there is much repentance before the lips shall praise the Lord, as David says in Psalm 51. This is a, a long reading, but a very, very good one. And uh, I've always said that the reading of God's Word is the most important part of the message. So let's turn to Psalm 51. And I want to show you David's thinking, thoughts, repentance, and prayer, all coming to the point of his lips being cleansed. Psalm 51, David's prayer. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and then be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. You see how repentance precedes the praising of God and the opening of the mouth. That's what we wanted to show you. Worked all the way down to there, and then he says, O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. You see, if the heart is ready, you can give a good answer to anyone concerning your salvation in Christ. Now, are we supposed to do that? Well, look at 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. Peter was very close to dying. This was his ministry, his beloved people, and he was always giving them the best advice he knew how. 1 Peter 3.15, he says, But sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Don't be afraid to tell people what your hope is. He says, be ready to answer anybody. It may be the means of their conversion. You never know. You just never know. Now, God's favorites, God's children, the elect from before the foundation of the world, are a riddle to the world. They are strongest when they are weak. They glory in infirmities for Christ's sake. They know that Christ knows every heartbeat that they have. Look at Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Well, what's the object of that? Well, to give you boldness to come to the throne of grace. See the next verse? Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're not coming to an isolated God or the great spirit out there, the architect of the universe. You're coming to the man Christ Jesus who is tempted at all points as we are. He knows the human heart. He knows the human nature. And he loves his people. There's one other scripture there, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Let's see what that says. I don't remember right now. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Oh, this was the Lord talking to Paul. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, would I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, there is a reason giving, given because experienced 
by all the children of God of why we need help in praying. Paul says we know not what we should pray for. That's our verse today in Romans 8. And that's kind of hard to imagine. People well-educated, maybe been in the Lord for a long time, know the Bible from cover to cover, could have preached, taught classes, but they all fall in the same category. We don't know what we should pray for. And that's something. That's the reason given. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Now, if you use God's word for instructions in prayer, you learn how to pray right. God does not afflict us for us to swallow our griefs, but that we should vent them out in prayer. We have no other way to relieve ourselves in any distress but by serious address to God. This is the means appointed by God to procure comfort to the distressed mind safety to those that are in danger, relief to them that are in want, and strength to them that are in weakness. In short, the only means for obtaining good and removing evil. And that's something, prayer. God has that set out for us. God is our only help against all these, and prayer is the means to obtain relief from Him. Now, why is it we don't know how to pray right? There's darkness and confusion in our minds and we consult with the flesh and ask what is most easy, pleasant, and advantageous. It says the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. Where is that? Well, that's... It's verse 26. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, it's not the same intercession that Christ does in Romans 8.34. Look at Romans 8.34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, his intercession and the intercession of the Spirit in us in prayer is different. The Spirit draws up the petition. We voice it, and Christ presents it to the Father. That's how that runs. We are ignorant, and he teaches us what to pray for and assists us with holy inspirations. He excites us to pray with sincerity, call holy sighs and groans. Now, there are two things in prayer First, the matter of prayer, that is the things we ask for, and then the act of prayer, respecting our desires and addresses, and that's where we address God, respecting our desires and necessities. But so great is the infirmity and ignorance of the believer that he does not know what he ought to ask. He's not thoroughly acquainted either with his danger or his wants. He needs not only to be supplied from on high, but also divine guidance to show him what he wants 
And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in to assist him in praying. Jesus is the believer's intercessor in heaven. Turn to Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Yet the Holy Spirit intercedes in believers on earth, teaching him what to ask and exciting in him groanings expressive of his wants, though they cannot be uttered. That is, they cannot be expressed in words. Now, if Paul could pray wrong three times, how much more us? Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 8. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 8. And lest I should be exalted, this is Paul speaking, above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, or three times, that it might depart from me. And then we've already read that answer. The Lord said, No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The thorn will remain. Of course, there's been a lot of speculation as to what that thorn was, but we're not going to go into that today because I don't think I have the answer either. And then look how James puts it over in James 4.3. James 4.3. Hebrews, James, Peter. James is right between Hebrews and Peter. James 4, 3, it says, You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Now let's clear up a possible misunderstanding of the Spirit working in us. Turn to Galatians 4, 6. Galatians 4, 6. The only way we learn is by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Here it says, and because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, it appears that it's the Spirit crying. We're going to find out it's not. Now turn to Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15. Back to our chapter. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You see, it is we who cry, Abba, Father, and not the spirit who prays, who groans, who cries, but that he causes us to cry, to pray, and to groan. Such then is the work of the Holy Spirit here spoken of, in the heart of believers from which we learn 
that if there be any force in us to resist evil and to overcome temptation, it is not of ourselves, but of our God. Lessons like this ought to set us to thanking God continually for his wonderful salvation, not only saving the sinner, but caring for them in every detail in his life including the simple thing of prayer. And even in our dying hour, God gives his people dying support by his spirit. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank thee this morning for this brief lesson. Interesting. So very, very interesting to know how much we depend upon thee for every single thing including prayer and we ask that thou will give us that spirit of prayer may each and every one of us be stirred up to cry unto our God to make our calling and election sure as we look at this crumbling world in these last hours of its not of its existence but of its of this dispensation we see everything seemingly falling apart but it's falling apart right on time, right on schedule, right under thy observation, right according to thy perfect plan. We ask thee now to make spiritual things uppermost in the hearts of all of these here this day. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Got 15 minutes. Go to the back, get a little water, coffee. Dixie, one more time, made a delicious little coffee cake. So you all go back and have a little.